Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Today, folks, we're gonna meet an American hero on this special edition of The Hot Zone. This is The Hot Zone. Engaging with the news in a whole new way, international war correspondent Chuck Holton brings insight into areas of crisis and lets you help those affected. Hi, everyone. Mosul was once Iraq's second largest city, but when the operation to oust ISIS from that city began in 2015, nobody realized the Iraqi army would spend nearly a year fighting to retake the city. In that fight, the forces arrayed against ISIS, including the Peshmerga, uh, Iraqi army, provisional military units, they all paid for every foot of ground with blood. In all, more than 1,200 friendly lives were lost, as well as more than 7,000 wounded. Estimates of the civilians who died in that battle are as high as 40,000, with tens of thousands more wounded. Well, there was very little medical aid available, even among the Army units, and two Americans decided to do something about that. Today, we have the privilege of hearing from one of them, Derek Coleman, who's a former machinist from California. Tell me about your experience in Mosul, start to finish, and what you learned from it, first of all. Okay, so... Um... Well, in 2015, late 2015, I flew to Iraq to volunteer with the Kurdish Peshmerga. Um, I'm not former military, but I have firearms experience, medical training, um, just kind of a jack of all trades type of person, prepper, and and wanted some adventure. So um, I lived in Iraq from that time all the way till 2000, late to the, or middle of 2017. And uh, in the middle of that, the operation for Mosul happened. So um, myself and Pete, who you met there in Mosul, we were training Peshmerga. The war was kind of slow for a while. It was kind of static trench warfare, basically, for about six or seven months. And in that time, we just treated odd refugees, trained Peshmerga on basic medical, tried to do what we can. Um, and then in October of 2016, the battle for Mosul basically started. And um, when we started following the Peshmerga in, treating guys as they, uh, as they got wounded, treated civilians as they liberated villages. Uh, eventually, the Kurdish Peshmerga kind of captured all their territory. And that was kind of a transition for us because the Peshmerga were done fighting. So we decided to join up with the Iraqi army. And um, so in late November, we followed the Iraqi army into Mosul, proper is what we were calling it and set up casualty collection points at kind of as close as we can get to the fighting without being, you know, in direct fire. And, uh, that was always like a learning curve, especially as the battle would ebb and flow. But, uh, we would take between 60 to 70 patients a day, sometimes more, um, uh, you and, and Oliver North, I think just happened upon our casualty collection point one day. All right, we're driving through the town of Gojali, which is one of the suburbs of Mosul that has just been recently taken in the last two or three days from ISIS. As a matter of fact, most of these buildings have not yet been cleared of mines and IEDs. And there are snipers over here to our left that have been taking pot shots at the Iraqi forces that are right here in this area right now. We're going to a casualty collection point where there are some wounded and some refugees that have taken shelter there. 
We arrived at the casualty collection point where wounded Iraqi soldiers are brought for first aid before being evacuated from the battlefield. There we found two Americans from a small NGO working as medics. They've been doing this for almost a year. Colonel North spoke to them during a rare quiet moment. I'm Pete Reed. Pete Reed from where? Bordentown, New Jersey. And how about yourself? I'm uh, Derek Coleman from San Diego, California. We've had today with him 23 wounded civilians and four dead. Uh, that was before noon. Bad morning. Yeah, a lot of children too. It's been a it's been a bad week for civilians, especially children. We're two to three kilometers from the edge of ISOF lines, okay. and probably less than four from where Dash sleeps at night. Before long, more wounded came in, and the two medics went back to work. Fresh troops passed by, heading for the fight. Hopefully none of them will ever need the service these brave Americans provide. Um, scrounging what medical supplies we could, uh, just doing basic triage, first aid, so they could survive the ambulance ride to the nearest hospital, which sometimes could be a 45 or longer minute drive. So that was the best we you know, tried to do. Um, and yeah, we think... Uh, we think we did a lot, you know, and helping people out and <clears throat> seeing people survive the trip with, that otherwise would have died in a few minutes. Um, a lot of amputations. I mean, everything modern warfare has to offer, you know, car bombs were a big one. Um, a majority of our patients were civilians just because of the, you know, as you know, the <clears throat> population was so densely packed by that point, whether they were Sunni holding out to the last moment, trying to stay with ISIS and, you know, or, or not able to escape. Um, it didn't really matter. But at that point there were civilians are so concentrated that, you know, the way I thought about it was, let's say a suicide vest goes off to hit a soldier. Well, there's 20 civilians right there too. So by that simple fact alone, um, people are huddled together in basements and cars. And so, yeah, a lot of the people we treated were civilians and a lot of them children, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was, that was our daily life. How did you guys get medical supplies? I mean, where, what was your supplier for that? <clears throat> so to start, we had kind of we were actually scrounging from like old oil companies that had come and gone. You know, the oil in industry there in Kurdistan had had kind of uh, fled. And so there was actually uh, generous people who were like, hey, you know, we've got all these like first aid stuff that we're leaving behind because basically, you know, we're abandoning an uh, oil field or what, you know, oil derrick. And and so it started with that. We did a lot of, um, you know, buying cloth at a bazaar and making improvised stuff. And then, um, it, it just, just really honestly, there, there was a million different ways of procuring it. We would scrounge maybe something that the U.S. Army had dropped and and we knew it would either get squandered or disappear, as it always did. Mm -hmm. um, so we would help ourselves to certain things like that that were meant for the Peshmerga or meant for the Iraqi army. Um, and we weren't stealing U.S. government supplies. We were just going <laughs> preventing them from disappearing, basically. Um, and so, yeah, kind of it kind of changed as time went on. We did get more kind of support. You know, eventually Pete and I uh, appeared on the news. It was kind of all at once. It was like a blitzkrieg of like CNN, MSNBC all on the same day, it seemed like. And uh, uh, and then we started to get donations and stuff like that. But um, it, it, we were always one day from running out. And so how did you I mean, you weren't being paid to do this. Right. So how were you no. supporting yourselves? How were you eating and things like that? Well, uh, speaking for myself personally, I was um, I was a machinist 
uh, and I had saved up quite a bit of money. I had a decent sized gun collection. And, and when I first flew out to Iraq, I basically sold everything I owned and went to Iraq with, um, I guess about $10,000. And that goes quick as you, as you probably know, <laughs> if you're not bringing anything in, even in a cheap country like Kurdistan, if I'm, you know, volunteering at a hospital and sleeping on the ground, it's still, if I don't have anything coming in, it starts to disappear. Uh, eventually we partnered up with a Slovakian NGO, which was able to kind of keep us afloat with a, with a monthly kind of stipend, I guess you could say, or a, a salary. Um, as far as food and housing, I mean, we would just live with the military for free. So if it, if it was the Kurdish Peshmerga, they would feed us three square meals a day when we could, and we would sleep with them. And then same with the Iraqi army. I mean, these guys, it didn't take long for us to become heroes to these guys because we were even their friends. Yeah, they they you, knew that. You know, what, what was the reception you got when you first showed up and said, hi, we're here to help you. And they were like, Yeah. <laughs> It's funny because you kind of nailed it like that's exactly how it happened. It's just the way you (laughs) your impersonation right there. I mean, with the Peshmerga, it was more gradual. We had kind of, you know, the war was slow. So we had done trainings with these guys. And I think, you know, there was a whole smattering of volunteers that showed up, especially in Kurdistan. Mm -hmm. And I think they kind of gave a lot of volunteers a bad name because these guys, you know, maybe were gung ho about wanting to fight or maybe they were former military and it was my way or the highway. And Myself not being former military, Pete was a Marine, but we were able to kind of bend with the culture and and figure out that, look, we got to be patient with these guys. We got to do things their way as and then try to do what we can and, and teach them. Um, so with the Peshmerga, it was we earned a good reputation. You know, we lived out there 120 degrees, drinking one cup of water a day with them. I think we kind of earned their respect and we were busting our asses trying to teach these guys. So with them, it was this gradual. And by the time the battle happened, it was like, oh, yeah, they want us with them. With the Iraqi army, it was exactly how you said it. We drove up in pickup trucks one day, found the nearest unit that we could stop at and found a uh, like a lieutenant or a captain that spoke a little bit of English. And we said, hey, we're doing we're going to do medical for you. And they're like, mm, OK. And, uh, you know, hey, we know this person, this person, this person, whatever. And they were very standoffish. Right. And so were we. I mean, we heard bad things about the Iraqi army, never dealt with them before. And then I think the very first day we treated 60 to 70 patients. We started at seven in the morning, finished at midnight. And that was it. The Iraqi army was sold on us. And I mean, it doesn't it happens so quick. You know, I mean, you can spend one day with someone in combat and you're like friends for life. So that's all it took was just that little awkward moment in the the morning. And then and then the rest of it was history. So so you you treated hundreds, if not thousands of people in the the time that you spent there. Uh, you saw a lot yeah. of mayhem, a lot of de- death and destruction. Uh, what was yeah. the hardest moment for you in the entire time? <clears throat> it's kind of unanimous with anybody who's done. I think what what we did is is, is dealing with the children. You know, um, children have no choice in in any of these things. You know, a civilian adult is a lot of times. Um, maybe they, you know, even if they're a victim of this war, like most of them are, of course, they made choices at least to, you know, maybe they lived in the city two years ago and they chose, you know, but a child literally is just passive and has to, has no control over anything. Mm-hmm. And that's tragic in and of itself, you know, and, and then you, you throw them into a war. I mean, as far as a particular moment, there's, you know, <clears throat> you kind of, you, 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 emotion will catch up with you every once in a while. And then you kind of push it back down because you can't. You can't deal with it. You can't digest it right there in the moment. You've got 15 bleeding people 
Um, two moments that kind of stick out with me that that I think are both unique in their own way is um, a, a child that I I ran to the back of a Humvee to, you know, every time a Humvee or truck or whatever came up, I never knew what it was, right? There was no one telling me, hey, there's a double amputee coming this way, whatever. And I went to the back and there was a child in the back of a Humvee and I picked him up um, <clears throat> and tried to carry him, you know, like this, like you would carry a, you know, a, a small person. And I didn't realize his legs were basically disconnected and only connected by skin. And so he actually kind of fell through one of my arms and I had to kind of throw him on top of me in order to prevent him from falling on the ground. And I carried him in and I was just covered in head to toe from his blood um, just because I wasn't really expecting the, the injury he had. And um, we treated him. He, he we, you know, tourniquet, everything you could. But of course, he was kind of already gone at that point. And and, and anyone who's worked in medical, that they'll, they'll probably tell you the same. But children, it's like they're active, they're active, they're active, and then they just drop. Where an adult, you kind of see them slowly fading away. Um, the other thing that kind of sticks out for me is um, <clears throat> I was actually alone at one point because Pete had gone to treat somebody at a different location. And we ended up getting eight or nine people at the same time. And uh, and they set two guys on stretchers. And I looked at one guy. And he was missing both his legs, missing an arm, burned from head to toe. And I looked at another guy. He was burned head to, from toe and missing one leg. And I thought, I can't treat this guy with the three amputations. I got to go to this guy first. So I skipped over this patient, you know, in triage in the most extreme form. Treated this other guy, got him at least tourniqueted, had some other Iraqi medic. Well, they knew basic stuff. You could get them to kind of, they were basically our assistants and uh, through broken English or uh, Arabic and got this guy kind of started. The second guy went back to the first guy and he was dead. And it was like just that quick little moment, you know, and of I could have never saved him. Right. That, that's what I tell myself in my head. But um, it was weird to go basically choose who was going to get treated. And the other guy who I didn't cho choose died immediately, basically. So those little moments stick out for me, um, you know, smells. Certain things take me back, but uh, but yeah, nothing so, really I mean, haunts me. You know, time, I think the lucky part is, is sorry. You spent more time in active combat than the vast majority of soldiers, sailors, Marines, anybody. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, so sorry. So my question is, what what how how have you how hard has it been for you to come back to regular life? We were we were seeing the results of battle all the time, but not necessarily being in the battle. I mean, we would have mortars land by and, and shots would ring over and stuff. And, and and I guess just dealing with the casualties was its own form of kind of the combat, especially in the conditions we were in. Um, you know, we just had to take a break every once in a while. It, and it was and it was usually it was usually Pete that would kind of just go, you know what? I need a breather like we just need to disappear for half a day and we would go back to Erbil, which anyone who was in Kurdistan knows it's kind of strange. You can be in modern combat and then a 45 minute drive, you're in a city with pizza hut. Um, so every once in a while we'd have to do that, but that was tough too, because whenever we left, nobody, we knew nobody was treating, um, coming back home. Uh, it was a weird experience. You know, it's like feeling afraid of things that when I was never afraid in combat in certain scenarios, maybe I'd hear, uh, firecrackers outside for new year's Eve. Like I'm sure it'll happen tonight. And, and, uh, and I don't know, 
like, I don't know how I'm going to react. It's weird. Even though I know I'm safe in my head and my body is like, uh, it'll kind of give me a little, you know, shakes, whatever. But I've, I've adapted really well. I don't have nightmares or anything like that. It was kind of like this three or six month period where I was kind of adjusting. Yeah. Um, and I kind of, you know, I, I figure that's kind of the, the normal human reaction yeah. to digest it. Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, and Derek, I, it's so good of you to come and uh, tell us that, your story. I'd love to hear more about it, but we're, we're out of time. But, uh, sure. I, man, you are a hero. There's no two ways about it. And uh, I, I know that that has been the most amazing um, adventure of your entire life. It's the kind of thing that you will tell your grandchildren about. But uh, I pray that the good deeds that you have done throughout those, those actually more than a year in, in that uh, environment will come back on you tenfold. So uh, thanks for, for Thank talking you. with us. Real good talking to you. Today. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Folks, these are the kinds of stories I intend to bring you on this podcast. I want to let you hear about what's going on in the areas of crisis directly from the people who are in the thick of it. And as you listen to this, I'm, I'm heading to Syria, and I'll be looking for more amazing interviews like this. So stay tuned. Over the, the next couple of weeks, I probably won't have enough internet to get many episodes of this podcast out. But be patient. When I get out of Syria, I'll undoubtedly have some amazing stories to tell you. So check back often and like and subscribe at patreon.com slash hotzone. Thanks for your support. I'm Chuck Holt. The Hot Zone is produced by Amy Holton and Live Fire Media. Copyright 2019.